It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. With you for the next 60 minutes in multiple ways. You can interact with us here on the program. You give us a ring at 201-939-4513. Can't get to the phone, not a problem. You can use Twitter, hashtag GiantsChat. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and Giants.com slash podcast. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow. A lot to tackle. We'll get into the Kadarius Tony trade to Kansas City and also, of course, look ahead to Sunday's matchup with the Seahawks. So, Paul, let's start with the biggest news of all, and that is the fact that yesterday the Giants finalized the deal with the Chiefs. Kadarius Tony goes to Kansas City. The Giants, in return, get a compensatory third round pick as well as a sixth round pick. Clearly, the biggest story surrounding Tony's tenure with the Giants is, and it's unfortunate, he had the opportunity to be out there for 24 games, but when you add it all up, he was only out there for 12. And mm-hmm. he didn't even get through all 12 of those games, if you recall, because some injuries prevented that from happening. So that's 50% of the potential total games played. He was dealing with a hamstring issue, couldn't get on the field in recent weeks. I think everybody was thinking, all right, hey, the bye week comes. They get Kadarius Toney back. They get Kenny Galladay back. Maybe Daniel Jones starts to see what he could do with a full arsenal of weapons. Fortunately, we're never going to get to see that come to fruition. The Giants decided they might as well get something in return for Tony at this point if they ultimately can't get back on the field with him in the long run. You know, Lance, when you consider the frustration of him not being available, and yet the team is 6-1, and one, and he's contributed two catches for zero yards. Okay, you think about that for a minute. This team has done what it's done without getting anything from him. So that's pretty remarkable. But it also brings to mind the fact that Wondell Robinson came back two weeks ago and has had two productive games, which in my mind is what kind of pushed this thing along. Because I don't believe in my heart of hearts that if Wondell Robinson had not been able to come back from his sprained knee when he did, I'm just not so sure they would have made this move. Because the wide receiver room is already very thin. And you say to yourself, well, okay, now they're another guy down. Yeah, but at the same time, the type of receiver he is, Wondell Robinson does fit that bill. Richie James, to some degree, does fit that bill. To to have those guys available and playing and being productive, I, I don't want to say it's a luxury because it was not a luxury in a thin receiver's room to off a guy. But I think it made it a little bit easier for them to make this trade. I think that's a fair point. It's just what I'm thinking in the back of my mind, Paul, is there's no guarantee not to wish anything against anybody. But Wondell Robinson, remember, already dealt with a knee issue. So who's to say that, you know, he can hold up or anybody else can hold up for the remainder of the season? I think well, it's only never... half a season now. Yeah. You're betting on half a season. You're not betting on 17 games anymore. 100%. But still, you want to protect yourself because there's just no guarantee that the nucleus you have on the field for week eight is going to be there in week 10 or week 12. That's just not how the NFL works. There's so many movable parts. So I don't look at it. And it's funny because when you were talking about Wondell Robinson's similar skill set, if you remember when they drafted Robinson, the big storyline, Paul, was, well, what do they need Wondell Robinson for? It's a duplication of skill set, right? He and Tony are Mm -hmm. somewhat mirror images. But the truth be told was the fact that these guys never even got on the field together. No. It's more of a reason why you don't look at it as a duplication because you don't know if you were going to get X amount of games being able to tap into those two as well as Saquon Barkley. So, no, I get where you're coming from. Robinson being productive maybe gives them the comfort. Okay, we've got a rookie getting back on the field. We can rely on him. I look at it as you could have six healthy receivers. It doesn't hurt to have eight at your disposal because there's no guarantee that the six are going to be able to come out of this next game. Yeah, I think the the interesting question that I'm being asked nonstop now is will the Giants use this additional draft capital to turn around and make another deal 
by the November 1st trade deadline, and we all know that there are receivers out there. I'm still of the opinion that they will not because I think the kinds of guys you're talking about will require probably at the very least a third-round pick or up, uh, you know, a first or second day, if you will. I'm not so sure that Joe Shane is in the mindset of trading a first or second day pick. I think if he could find himself a bargain for a third day pick and he felt that that player was a significant upgrade over what they have, I could then see him making a move. But I think his gut feel right now is he is not going to spend anything higher than a third day pick to go get anybody. I just don't think so which would rule out the names that you keep hearing in the uh, in the Twitterverse, uh, if you will. I mean, to be frank with you, right? Now, somebody said to me the other day, uh, how about Hamler, who's basically buried with the Broncos? Yeah, the other Denver receiver. Right? And I said, well, I don't get the point. Okay, he's another Smurf. And quite frankly, they got Pimpleton on the practice squad. How much, how much more accomplished? I mean, I, yeah, he had one decent season of production with Denver, but the last two seasons, he's done nothing. I mean, why would I want to spend a draft pick on him if I could just bring up Pimpleton? I mean, you know, I I think those are the kinds of questions you have to ask yourself. Is the receiver going to be a significant enough upgrade? And if so, what is the cost? I just don't see Shane going to the Mercedes-Benz dealer when he's probably more interested in buying a Ford. Plus, if he continues to collect draft picks, the mindset could be you can always bolster the receiving core through the draft next year, and then you don't have to give up any capital. You just use the capital on a wideout. Think about how much depth we've seen come out of recent draft classes at that position. I just I don't understand what the rationale is to try to make a splash now when, A, that player may not be in your long-term plans. Clearly, if you're going to go after a wide receiver that calls for a pick above a third rounder as you laid out then a the player has to have multiple years left on his contract Paul because you're not going to rent that player no and you have to feel good that he's a good fit for your system and you know what you're essentially going to get out of him you're not going to bring in a wide receiver and then say all right well we're going to use the next few months to experiment to see what we could get out of him and then we'll determine whether or not he's you're in, in no position to do plans. that no exactly So that's more of a reason why if the Giants really think they need help at wide receiver, I would say hold on to your draft picks and address that in the upcoming offseason as opposed to going out and just bringing in somebody for the sake of bringing in somebody. Plus, I mean, let's be realistic here. Regardless of who the wide receiver is that people are going to throw out and speculate about, do you really think that one player takes this team to unbelievably new heights, Paul? Not me. Neither do I. So I think you, you got to look at it from that standpoint. Can you wait to address the area until the offseason? My answer would be yes. I think you can wait. I don't think you have I to mean, do it now. And let's not forget something, Lance. And I know many people probably have given up on Kenny Galladay. I haven't. I'm sorry, but I haven't. I've watched this guy out there. Uh, he's out there with the trainers this morning uh, doing some stuff on the side. Uh, I've talked to Kenny. He is feeling better. The knee is getting better. We heard from him in the locker room yesterday say, I've never been on a 6-1 and team before. I can't wait to get back on the field. I want to be part of this train. This is a fun ride. I want to be on it. I want to get involved with this team again. I don't want to be out. I. He spoke very well yesterday like a pro's pro. It was a very impressive media session he had at his locker. And I, for one... If Kenny Galladay is able to make it back over the course of the next few weeks, look, I don't care if he's, and and I get it, he's not been available, but what if he comes back and gives this team one outstanding month of football in December when they need it the most against their division rivals and are battling for a chance to potentially, do I dare use that P word? What What if he does ball out and does some really good things for this team during that month? Won't you be happy that they kept him? Well, I mean, at this point, if you you're know, not going to get anything in well, return. Well, they're not going to get rid of him anyway. But what yeah, I'm saying exactly. is, wouldn't you be happy that they, they, they actually relied on him and gave him a chance to produce? Because I think there's something left in Kenny Galladay. I'm not giving up on him. Well, it goes back to the way that I think this team should look at the receiving core is make the most of what you currently have. And then you review at the end of the season where you need to improve. Now, regardless of what Galladay does moving forward, that shouldn't prevent them from addressing the wide receiver position in the offseason. But I like your thinking in terms of tap into Galladay, get him back to full health, 
see what Wandell Robinson could do as he builds upon his first few performances. And then if you want to call up somebody from the practice squad like Pimpleton, as you're referring to, so be it. I just, there's no savior to me outside this organization that comes in and takes this offense to new heights. No matter how good, once again, people want to speculate about a specific wide receiver. And I don't see the point of sacrificing resources for the future to just go out and get a player that maybe could help you for a few months. You know, it just, in, it's not in, practical. In short, Lance, and I'm being a little bit of a stretch here with this hypothetical, but in short, I'll give you an example, okay? Before you start writing anybody off, how about when Steve Smith came to the Giants as a rookie in 2007 and played a handful of games, caught a handful of passes, got injured, and didn't do anything to help this team until the postseason? And then he caught some very important passes, including a huge third down in the Super Bowl. Or David Tyree, who basically gave them hardly anything as a receiver. But then what happened in the Super Bowl? When he wound up, you know, making not only a touchdown catch, but then the most infamous catch uh, in, in Super Bowl history. I mean, you know, don't just close the door and give up on a guy. At some point in time, Kenny Dolliday is going to get back on the field. And I'm sorry, folks, but if if I had to put some chips down on the table, I'm going to say Kenny Galladay's story is not finished here. He's got something else to write, and it's going to happen before the end of this season. What's going to happen to him next season? I have no idea. Obviously, the way the numbers work, cap-wise, if he doesn't give them anything this year, it's probably unlikely that he does return. I'm here to tell you, I still think he's got something to give this team. One other wide receiver I think worth mentioning who also was just brought back on the practice squad is Robert Foster. If you're right. looking for a speedster, a guy that can be a vertical threat and stretch the field, we were talking about him, at least I specifically was in the offseason, and then mm -hmm. he ultimately didn't make the roster. But this is a guy that has ties to Buffalo. He has shown good yardage per catch when healthy. That's another guy they can entertain if they're looking for that deeper threat to maybe expand the passing attack. So that's more of a reason why, to me, you explore your internal options, you see how things play out, and then you use your draft capital during the course of the 2023 draft, and then you go from there. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. We will open up the lines in a little bit. But, Paul, let's move on now to this game, the task at hand, as they travel across the country to face the 4-3 and three Seahawks, who are in first place in the NFC West. Speaking of draft capital, by the way, the common element between both of these teams, if you look closely, both of them are getting some great production out of their draft classes in 2022. Yes. Right? Seattle, when we spoke to Dave Wyman, the Seahawks color radio analyst, and that is going to be part of the latest Giants Huddle podcast, which is going to be up on various platforms, Giants.com, the Giants mobile app, as well as your favorite podcast platforms. Paul and I chatted with him. There's also an interview, of course, with Brian Dable and Daniel Jones, and Wyman even highlighted that. He said they're probably not in this position right now if it wasn't for the draft class. And when we say the draft class, they've got two starting offensive linemen at tackles who they drafted in the first and the third round. They've got two secondary players, one of which Tariq Woolen, who is playing out of his mind. And you've got a number of other key ingredients that have contributed. And then we've been talking about the Giants. I understand Bellinger's hurt, but it goes well beyond Bellinger in terms of Wondell Robinson, Evan Neal, guys on the defensive side of the ball. So I think that's a big reason why both of these teams have been, if you want to fairly characterize them, as pleasant surprises in the first seven games of the season. You know, Lance, it's, it's really a simple formula. If you can get immediate production out of your rookies, and then, as you've been asking for since uh, the last season ended, get something out of those second- and third-year players. I mean, this is really, it's not a secret formula. It's a tried-and-true formula. If your youngest guys on the team with the least amount of experience can come in and give you quick production, holy good God, you are going to be in such better shape than you would be otherwise. Now, as far as the makeup of this Seattle team, when you look at them on offense, this team has been one of the top teams scoring-wise. They're fifth in the NFL. They're averaging 26 points per game. Geno Smith has been very efficient. He's taking care of the ball. He leads the NFL in completion percentage, nearly 74% of the passes. 
that he is taking care of. So, you know, that has been a big reason. But I think what stands out to me, Paul, is their rushing attack, especially what Kenneth Walker has been able to do, their second-round pick over the last two games. Rashad Penny out for the season with a broken fibula. Last two games, he's taken full advantage of even more playing time. And by them pounding the ball and Geno taking some of those short passes, you look at what Seattle has faced. It's no surprise that they're fourth best in third down efficiency because this is not a team that puts themselves in a precarious spot where they got to play third and tens and third and twelves. They're going to take what the defense gives you. They're going to move the chains and they're going to methodically try to move down the field while mixing in some explosive plays because they have 11 plays of 20 more yards this season and that's up there in the top ranks of the NFL. Yeah, I think when you look at the Seahawks as a whole, and I'm going to encapsulate this real, real simple for everybody out there. This is a Seahawks team that during the course of the year has done a very good job with their balance because they did have the two running backs in the backfield doing some damage. Now, Penny's got himself a broken fibula, so that's the end of him. Now they're down to only one back, and I get it. Okay, Walker had, what, nearly 170 yards rushing and two touchdowns against the Chargers. I understand that. But this will change the makeup of what they're trying to do. All right, and you also got to take Metcalf out of the equation now because he's got himself hurt. Uh, Lockett, yeah. Lockett, Lockett is playing with a gimpy uh, hamstring that has significantly hindered him the last couple, uh, hindered him the last two weeks. So, so Lockett is is not right, and Metcalf and Penny are gone. So please don't mistake. Okay, the quote highest scoring home offense in the NFL for what you're going to see on Sunday. Geno Smith is coming in with basically three wheels on his car, and that's a problem for them. I'm sorry, but I'm not scared. I'm not intimidated. I'm not overly impressed. And to talk all about their efficiency at this point doesn't make a lot of sense because they're missing too many significant parts. It's not the same Seahawks team that's been playing all season long. And by the way, Geno Smith does not have a fourth quarter come from behind victory, you know, in about 10 years. Okay. You want to get ahead of them because once you do, everything that they've done to this point to be successful goes down the toilet, especially when they don't have their biggest play guys and certainly not operating at their peak efficiency. That's the key to this game for the Giants. I know that they've been comeback kids, but they need to be able to get the lead on this team and force Geno in a in a, a uh, injury-riddled uh, situation to try to bring this team back. I submit to you he can't do it. Well, clearly, I think you want this to be a Geno Smith game. I'm with you there. I don't think Seattle is limping in as much as you laid out because, first of all, Kenneth Walker can handle 25 carries a game. It doesn't matter that they don't have Rashad Penny. Walker, he was the workhorse in Michigan State, Paul. So yeah. I really don't think for one that's year. throwing so much on his plate that he can't handle that. He's done it for one game with, with this well, he's team. He's done it for two. I mean, you know, well, Penny got hurt in that previous game, and Walker was pretty much doing the heavy lifting for the majority how of many? Contest. How many carries did he have two weeks ago? Let me bring it up right now. I don't have those numbers. I don't have in front of me. It was it was not not workhorse numbers. Well, all I'm saying is that's his mo. So I don't look at what he did in one or two games. I look at what he did in college. In college, Michigan State handed him the ball. They didn't shy away from that. So it's not like he's going from splitting carries in college to now all of a sudden well, a rude awakening. He was a part time player at Wake. Okay, until he got to Michigan State, and then last year at Michigan State, in his one year there, I think he averaged something like 25 carries a game. So you're yeah. right. He did do yeoman's duty in his one season at Michigan State. Now this year, he had two 21 weeks ago, carries against he the Cardinals. Had 20, 21. Yeah. All right. Now that's that's getting into that area. Once you get over 20, sure. now you're getting into that area. And then of course last week he just belted the living hell out of, out of the Chargers. Yeah, so I mean those are two games. But that also legitimate. didn't that include the the 70 something yard touchdown run? Yeah, he had a big touchdown run. Sure. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, in, in fairness, so, though, Paul, again, I could say the same thing about a game when Saquon has a big run. No, and We're I understand that. Away from no, him. no, 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 no. I I understand that. I'm not saying he's got the capabilities because he's got good speed. Okay, for a, for a guy of, of his ilk, he has very good speed. I think his touchdown running, he hit 22 miles an hour. Which and he's is, a powerful guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I have great respect for Walker. Trust me, I do. But not having Penny is a very significant loss for them. I'm sorry. I, I see that as a very big loss. 
having oh. a, a solid one-two punch, much like we've seen with other teams, including the Cowboys in recent years, uh, that is a benefit. Well, it's always nice to mix and match. I'm not going to deny that. The problem is, though, Penny, if you look at his track record, he hasn't stayed healthy over the last few years. No, so he hasn't. Seattle is used to playing without Rashad Penny would be what I would throw out there. They have a few other guys, but I don't think anyone with as much playing time as Penny and then what Walker did in college. But I'm not that overly concerned about Walker. The loss of DK Metcalf is huge because it's not that you're just losing a big target. You're also losing one of their best run blockers. Metcalf is great out in the open field yep. to help help a walker, to help a penny get some extra yardage. So that hurts. Lockett did not practice last week. He actually has been practicing this week. And I was listening to his press conference the other day, and he said, you know, he feels a lot better when he could get out there for some workouts leading into the game. Last week, he didn't have that luxury, and he thought that that clearly impacted his play. So I think he'll be a little bit stronger, much better position this week in comparison to previous weeks. And then here's the X factor for Seattle. It's the play of the tight ends, actually. Maybe more so than anything else. They use a lot of three tight end sets. Those guys help with the run blocking, and Geno's leaned on them. If he can dump it off to them for five yards and set up a manageable second or third down, he's going to do that. I guess, see, your point about Seattle is not as full of firepower as they were a few weeks ago. I think there is some validity to that, but what I think Seattle has proven, Paul, is that over these seven games— some games they've won with 20 to 40-yard plays. Other games they've won because they're putting together lengthy drives. So I think that they have shown they've evolved over the course of the season where regardless of what style fight you want to go through, they're at least comfortable because they've had some exposure to that. Degree. Well, the good news, of course, is that Wake Martindale's defense hasn't necessarily given up those over-the-top plays. So those yep. every once in a while periodic big time hits that Seattle has been relying on because their red zone offense is putrid and their red zone defense is not any good either. Uh, I mean, I look at this matchup, Lance. I'm sorry. I just don't, I don't see why Seattle is favored. And I know well, that's they're, they're talking 81% rain. Okay, it's not going to be fun. It's going to be low 50s and 81% chance of rain. Welcome to the Emerald City. Exactly. So I don't know how that's going to impact the game. But everything that Seattle has relied on during the course of, of this early season to build what they've built to get to four and three, I'm sorry. I, I, I just I just I'm not so sure it's gonna any of those things are gonna work against the Giants. Well, they have not been very good in the red zone at all. Your point is well taken. They're 31st, 36% of the time. That's why a lot of their touchdowns have come outside of the red zone. But as you mentioned, the Giants haven't necessarily given up huge passing plays through the air. However, they have given up some big running plays, Paul. They See, have. that's why, to me, the key for the Giants is if you can contain Kenneth Walker and you could put Geno in some tough third down situations, the game plays right into the hands of the Giants. Yes. But, okay, if it becomes what we saw with Baltimore, what happened with Jacksonville, and you're going to get the big runs from Kenyon Drake and Travis Etienne, you know, then all of a sudden, Seattle could get back into their comfort zone. And if there's one thing over this first seven games that I would say the Giants still need to clean up, in addition to, of course, other things, they're not totally content if you as both coordinators, but the one that has to drastically change, their run defense has to change because you're keeping teams in the game by allowing them to maybe get away with not having an electric passing attack because they're so successful running the football. I, I, I and it really doesn't that. matter which back it is. I agree with that. And that see, that's the path to victory for Seattle. That, that is, to me, that is their only path to victory is that if they're able to keep the game close, hang in, and get their running game to continue to move them down the field and take the pressure off Geno. That is their one path to victory. Now, if you're the Giants, how do you take that path away? Well, you make sure that you're aggressive enough on offense to put, the, put a little space between you and the Seahawks. And how can you do that? Well, let's see. The Seahawks' rush defense is horrific. The Seahawks' pass defense is not very good. They're third most in the NFL in terms of missed tackles, and they're second most in the NFL in terms of allowing yardage after the catch. This should not be very hard to get up on these guys and to create the space necessary to take that run game component away from them, thereby throwing them in the deep end of the pool and drowning them. 
it is an attractive matchup based on those numbers. I mean, they're bottom of the barrel in a lot of statistical categories. However, I will say this. I think they've played better defense over the last two weeks against the Cardinals and the Chargers. So just like we're saying, okay, well, the offense doesn't have DK Metcalf and maybe they're not nearly as explosive. I don't know how much to read into some of those early struggles because the previous two games, Paul, they had very rough goes against the Lions and Saints. But the defense that I've seen in the previous two games, I think has cleaned up some of the mess. That doesn't mean that they're a shutdown unit. But the point is, which defense is going to show up in Seattle? Is it going to be the one we saw against the Lions or the, or the Saints? Or is it going to be the one that we've seen against the Cardinals and the Chargers? I don't know. It's a bit of a guessing game. I just think that they're not as bad as the numbers show. And I think some of the takeaways have also done some damage control. Now, granted, the Giants have done a good job protecting the football, but the takeaways have changed field position for Seattle, similar to what the Giants have done, Paul, where it's the bend but don't break. I feel like both of these defenses have adopted those philosophies, especially with how they've won some of these close games. Well, I mean, Seattle's red zone percentage uh, opponents is 60%, which is 22nd in the league. I don't know if that's necessarily bend but don't break because they're certainly giving up a bunch of touchdowns. Well, but they got 12 takeaways, though. I mean, they have no, changed I understand, games because but, of those. But, it may have not come in the red zone, I'm not saying that, but it's come at some opportune times if look, you go back to they some of still these games. Ha- they still have to play the game, and there is a clear path to victory for Seattle, and I told you what that is. If they can keep this game close, keep it balanced with their running attack, and rely on the ground game – against a rush defense that the Giants, quite frankly, has been a very inconsistent rush defense. They've stopped people in key spots, but they have allowed a lot of folks to run through a lot of open lanes in their rush defense, and that's got to stop. That's the clear path to winning for Seattle. That's why they still need to play this game, because there's a way Seattle can pull this one off. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, if they didn't play the game, then we might as well just sit at home and play these games out on video. (laughs) You know, have the video game console decided. So something tells me that's not going to happen. The Giants, over the course of the season already, in seven games, four different running backs have surpassed the century mark. So if that's not evidence that that has to clean up, Mm -hmm. I don't know what is. You can tell me that they've stopped them in the red zone and they stop them on fourth and one. You're right. Key points, they've come up beautifully. But over the course of an entire game... It has not been where it needs to be, especially as you go up against teams in November and December. The weather gets colder. They want to lean more on that facet. You're going to have to be able to definitely stop the run to put some of these quarterbacks in precarious spots. We'll open up the phone lines at 201-939-4513. A few reminders, though, before we get going. The Giants Huddle Podcast. Make sure you go subscribe to that. Podcast features a rapid reaction right after each game with one of our analysts, an episode midweek featuring an interview with a national analyst, and then a game preview featuring a long-form interview with a current Giants player, an exclusive sit-down with Bob Papa and head coach Brian Dable, and an opponent preview of that week's opponent. Search for Giants Huddle on your favorite podcast platform, or you can listen on the Giants app or at Giants.com slash podcast. And as I mentioned, the newest episode, the Week 8 game preview, is up, which has all of those characteristics. Also, don't miss Giants football at MetLife Stadium. Limited tickets are available for remaining home games, including a matchup with the division rival Eagles. Visit Giants.com slash tickets to find your game this season and secure your seat. Last but not least, the Giants' official connected TV streaming app is Giants TV. It brings original video content and game highlights on demand and direct to Big Blue fans. Giants TV is free. It's on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire TV, as well as the Giants mobile app. Let's open up the lines, 201-939-4513. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Ricky is in Portland, Oregon, and he joins us here on BBKL. What's happening, Ricky? Hey, how's it going, gentlemen? Doing all right. What's on your mind? Oh, all right, fantastic. Listen, I'm excited. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the rare opportunities I get to actually take the drive up to Seattle and catch a game uh, and, and watch the Giants play. I'm taking my boys uh, there. Uh, 12 and 9 to their first football games, and, and uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, Enjoy. Anyway, uh, thank you, thank you. Ho- hopefully it'll be a, 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 a good drive home. That's really the <laughs> The drive home is the one that I'm worried most about. <laughs> I, I got a six-hour plane ride home. Trust me, <laughs> I hope it's the same for me. <laughs> All right, so uh, just a couple of things. I had a, I had a comment and then uh, a question. Uh, the comment first is, uh, so, you know, for me, I'm doing my best to kind of manage my expectations as a fan. Obviously, you know, fan short for fanatic. 
Um, you know, I think if 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 the Giants finish anywhere close to 500, uh, if you would have told me that at the beginning of the season, I'd have been happy with it. Um, and I think you know most people kind of need to you know kind of look at things and put things in the right perspective. So uh, we're we're not overly disappointed. So um, hopefully they keep playing well and it'll it'll continue to you know to roll. Um, but my question for you guys is is that right now you know for me Daniel Jones is playing you know good enough football to be our starting quarterback for the for the foreseeable foreseeable future. If he continues to play the way he's been playing, do you guys feel like he's earned a contract for the rest of the uh, – let's say he finishes the season playing exactly the way he's been playing the entire season so far? Do you think he's earned that next contract? Yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead, Paul. No, I, I really, that's the short answer. He's He has done everything he can do to this point to ensure that his future is with this organization. If he helps them win games, it certainly gives them a lot of substance. But I've said this more often than not. I don't know if one season alone, in the eyes of Joe Shane and Brian Dable, says we want to lock him up long term. It may give them the flexibility and comfort to say, hey, let's operate with him. But I don't know if that means that they want to move forward with a multi-year contract. They may want to have some flexibility if they give him a new contract. So to that point, just a quick question about that. Would would you feel better if the Giants did something like a three-year deal, you know, at about twenty you know million per season, or you know, lock them up on a franchise tag for another season? Well, I mean, the franchise tag gives you more flexibility. And appreciate the phone call, Ricky. The franchise tag says he gets guaranteed money for that year. And then you determine what happens for another season. Can he duplicate his success? And then you can maybe talk about a long-term deal. However, you know, it's the old story. If Daniel plays out of his mind for another season, then his market value goes up. So there's risk, Paul, involved in both circumstances. But whether you give him a two-, three-year deal with an option or you give him the franchise tag, I still think that gives the Giants flexibility to say, okay, He's had one good season. He stayed healthy, but let's see it again. I have nothing against Daniel. My argument has always been one season alone does not define a career, Paul. And I think guys like Joe Shane and Brian Dable understand that too. In the NFL, you have to continue to come back and do it all over again, especially the quarterbacks that are premier franchise quarterbacks. You know what you're getting out of that position every single season. And Daniel, the durability issue, unfortunately, has stood in his way. Yeah, uh, two separate questions here. Number one, I've always felt that one of the best scenarios for the Giants would be to get Daniel signed to a new deal and then franchise tag Saquon Barkley. The reason being that the quarterback number is a much bigger number. And so if you get him signed to a new deal, you can finagle that number on the cap so that the 23 cap number will be lower. They're not going to be able to do that with the running back. The running back, if, if you know, he's he's a ten million dollar franchise tag. That's not going to cripple you in terms of your cap space next year. But if you've got to give Daniel, you know, thirty one million, I think is the tag for the uh, for the uh, the quarterbacks right now. That's a very large number. I'd love to be able to get him on a multi year deal so that I can squash that number and bring that sucker way down. And then if I need to use the tag on Barkley, that's what I would do. That, to me, is a much better case scenario. As far as Jones, I've said all along, and I could go into this for about three hours, but I'm not going to. To me, the best case scenario right now is to sit down with Daniel and say, look, here's a deal, three-year deal with a fourth-year player option, so that if if in, in some machinations you still believe that you've got enough in your career to get another big contract – This deal is short enough for you so that you could still go out and get another one. We'll take a chance, based on your injury history, of signing you to this deal now because we think you're a good player, but we'll we'll take our risk and sign you to a three-year guaranteed deal knowing full well that you haven't been able to stay on the field for all 17 games. We'll take that risk, but now you got to take a little bit of a leap of faith with us, be willing to take a little bit less of a smaller number, and again, you'll get your fourth-year option so that you'll, go, you'll sign a shorter-term deal, not a six-, seven-, eight-year deal. You'll sign a three-year deal with a fourth-year option, and, and this is how everybody wins. That's, that's what I've always believed, but we will see how it works. Let's head back to the lines. Rick is in Tampa. He joins us. What's happening, Rick? Hey, 
Paulie and Lance, happy Football Friday. Indeed. How are you guys? Hi. And, doing you know, right. Uh, you know, I, I'm doing great. I, my, my excitement for football is now 100% focused on Giants because uh, as our Yankees ball let us down once again, and they are no longer the talk right now. So I don't even want, you know, that was so depressing. So we're back to football, and football's king, and Giants are rolling along. You know, my exuberance and, and picking ability is it, it, it good in the beginning because if you look on the board, I picked Giants 10-7 and 7 as my bold prediction, and I think they're going to exceed that. But I did have Seattle, as a, a, and that's why I'm out of my knockout pools, as an early – uh, team that was going to be vying for that number one pick to grab a quarterback, obviously with Russell Wilson going or perhaps Will Anderson. I thought they were going to be totally bad in rebuilding, but all their their draft picks have clicked, like you're saying, even with Walker and them. So they're a surprise that I didn't see coming. And um, going into that this game, the, the t- first of all, I have three quick points. One, Paul, you were mentioning about Galladay, and you know what? I, I'm glad you trust him or, or think he's going to going to make a uh, comeback and everything, but I haven't seen anything from him to lead to that. And I can't really compare him to Steve Smith, who I love, or uh, Tyree as well, because I think he had came with a higher price ticket than those guys uh, in the same way. But um, I hope he fulfills what you're saying and comes back and le- and helps the team in the the cold winter months when we need that big, big white. Understand two things real fast. Number one, Brian Dable doesn't care about whatever the contract was or what they did to get him. He doesn't care about that. Every player in that locker room is equal. Do what you're supposed to do. If we can use you to win the game, we're going to use you to win the game. So, So throw out that part. And then the second part, I've seen this guy daily. All right? I, I deal with him. I talk to him. I watch what he does. He is trying to get back. Trust me when okay. I tell you. I've, I just, just left him out there this morning on the practice field. All right? He's working with the trainers. He's trying to make it back. Okay. I believe I, – I hope that's the scenario and because that would be amazing and that we can count on that. I have a couple things though. regarding Tony, first of all. Uh, you don't think uh, Jerry Judy for a third-round pick we would be able to get – or you would, Lance, you said you think we'd require more or perhaps a second-round pick to get him? Well, I also, you know, you have to consider whether or not the Broncos want to get rid of Jerry Judy, too. Okay. It's not as All if, right. you know, their te- you make it sound like their team has got one win and they don't have a future with Jerry Judy. Who's to say the Broncos want to get rid of him? Okay, that's going by, obviously, you've heard the same thing. So, I mean, it's Sure, not- yeah, but if, yeah. hold on, Rick, if I had a nickel for every time a player's name was thrown out in speculation <laughs> and trade speculation, I mean, come on, okay. really? So okay. because somebody's okay. trying to throw his name on the wall, I'm supposed to buy every type of rumor? I mean, come right. on. you got to well, have a little perspective okay. here. All right. Well, let's throw Jerry Judy's name out of there. What I'm saying, then, is the, the reason we made the trade. And I do have to ask a question, too. Do you think Mike Kafka had something to do with the connection with Kansas City with this? Well, thing, I'm sure Andy know, hey, Reid yeah. did his homework. It's hard to believe yeah. that Andy Reid didn't have a conversation with Mike Kafka, considering they know each other so well, to get some background right. Right. on Kadarius and, Tony. I'm sure that happened. And, and if, if he plays, Right away for Kansas City, my hate level for him has gone way up because that's just – that just – that just I won't bear, that just sucks. And I'm a Florida guy too. So, I mean, for him to play now and now he wasn't hurt and all that stuff would really be disturbing on, uh, uh, on that part that we wasted with this guy. But I, I, if he wasn't a good fit, I'm glad he's gone now. The, the question I have, though, regarding um, with Seattle game is do you think – now, the, the way, Paul, you laid it out for the way their uh, um, uh, defense, uh, pass, pass defense and everything, and with, with what's his name being hurt, which is a, which is a big plus, the wide receiver. And um, I think Wink's got to be looking at that at, and seeing this is the way we're – because our coaching staff has been phenomenal this year, and I think they find that little crack and they find a little uh, dink here and there that they're going to attack is, is – is going to be on display with that. And I really think that if they could do that, it's going to come down to mistakes and, and, and turnovers. Uh, and, uh, but I think that that's the path you were talking about for well, victory for the They could easily, and they've switched up in terms of left-right corners and traveling corners. If they want to, they could stick a Dory Jackson and take Lockett right out of the game. Okay? They could do that. And because there's no Metcalf – 
Now, as Lance mentioned, they're left with their tight ends. And that's that's going to be what Geno Smith has to ride if he needs to make a comeback. Boy, I don't like Seattle's chances in that regard at all. Marquise Goodwin is another name to watch out for who stepped up when Metcalf got Had hurt. a couple He's touchdowns the last week. Correct, who was with the San Francisco 49ers, dealt yeah. with injuries. So I would expect him to play a pretty significant role now that Metcalf's not available. And appreciate the phone call, Rick. With respect to Jerry Judy, just really quickly, because the last caller brought him up, Judy was a first-round pick in 2020 out of Alabama. He's been somebody that has dealt with some injuries, and he's by far Denver's best receiver. That's why I understand all the speculation, but it's not as if the Broncos, even though they're not playing very well, are completely out of it whether it be for this year or the future. So I don't understand what Denver's rationale would be. Now let's start parting ways with some of the key members of our receiving core, especially when you just invested in Russell Wilson. Who's he going to throw the ball to then moving forward? So, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but that's why I would at least look at it from that standpoint before we all of a sudden assign him to a new team. Let's head back to the lines. Cliff is in New York. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Cliff? Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, uh, this is a great week to be uh, talking about the receivers and what uh, what's going to be happening with Daniel uh, because we're playing Seattle, and I, I want to get to that in a second. But before I do, I'm having trouble letting go of the play uh, when Bellinger got hurt. I, I was hoping to reach Jonathan yesterday and ask him what a defender is supposed to do if he's in the middle of the field. Now he sees that the play is uh, completion to the tight end, and it doesn't look like there's any kind of a gimmick where the tight end's going to throw it. He's got to run to help bring the tight end down, and he sees somebody is on the tight end already. Is he supposed to run up and punch him in the face? Well, are you claiming that that was a dirty play? Is that what you're insinuating? I'm, I, I'm, I'm asking if anybody's asked the question because I didn't see any replay on it. I just saw a still photo that uh, Daniel I don't think it was Bellinger's a dirty play, Cliff, if that's what you're getting at. I, I think it was, once again, it was an accidental situation where the hand went into the helmet. I mean, guys' hands get caught in helmets all the time, and sometimes the defender is going to get hurt. I don't see anything that you could point to to say that there was an intent to hurt Daniel Bellinger or try to punch him or hit him in the eye. I, I, I don't see it at all that way. I concur with you, Lance. I, I don't see it that way either. I just right. think it was an unfortunate circumstance. And we certainly wish Bellinger well, and hopefully he'll get back on the field sooner rather than later. Okay, that's good to hear. I mean, because I didn't hear anything about anybody uh, bringing it up to the league or anything like that. Well, that may be the reason why, Cliff, no? (laughs) I mean, because you're perhaps (laughs) trying to find something that may not be there. No, 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 I'd rather not find it, trust me. I really I'll tell you what, Cliff, if you want to complain about something, how about the extra hits that Daniel Jones took during the game? Oh, yeah, I saw a lot of things to complain about. There were probably at least two or three late instances where guys crashed into Daniel when he had already given himself up. I mean, if you really want to complain about that, uh, and you know they weren't pulling up. They were going going after Daniel, and they were very glad to hit him. They were not going to pull off. That's something if you want to complain about, you certainly can. Okay. All right. Well, meanwhile, playing Seattle reminds me of something that I've thought of often over the years. Seattle was one of the teams that I would look at and say, why can't we be like them, meaning that they were competitive every year for a long time. Right, sure. And, and New Orleans, maybe. Uh, just, just looking at the NFC and mm-hmm. throwing, out the Patri- throwing out the Patriots as an outlier, you know, looking around the league. You know, there's a few teams. that. Were, so the way we get to be like that is the way, isn't that the way you were talking about Daniel today and the way you were talking about the receivers? No, we don't have to do anything right now to make a dramatic improvement in the receiving core, do we? I mean, right, right now, where are we? You know, I've been hearing about this uh, very gratefully during the week on this show, you know, reminding, of, reminding us of where we are in the project. You know, I'm having a very nice season as a fan, uh, winning these games and doing a different kind of yelling and screaming at the TV than I was doing last year, which was a much a much higher pitch scream. You know, this is more like go team go kind of screams. You know, and that that's that's a lot more fun. And and uh, but when we beat the Ravens, I was thinking, well, this is very nice, but I'm really not ready to play the Bills in the Super Bowl. You know, right? And it's year one of the process, and because it's going so well, it's easy to get carried away, but you can't. And we know that this wide receiver room is thin. And if the Giants ever do get three scores down in a game, which has yet to happen, they're going to be dramatically challenged to try to get back into that game. 
And it's going to happen at some point this season, I'm sure. And when it does, it does. It's still part of the growing process. You see, that's that's where you got to be realistic in your expectations and say, as fun as this has been, okay, this team is not all of a sudden co-favorites to go to the Super Bowl. They're just not. Exactly. Exactly. I think did Seattle, you, ever... the example that you look at at Seattle, and you bring up a good point, Cliff. Yes, they pretty much made the playoffs every single year since Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson came together, but they built that team through the draft, and Wilson came in just when Carroll was starting, and they grew up together. But the heart of that franchise was built through the draft. Seattle, you go back, you look over the years, they did not make big splashes. The Legion of Boom, all those guys were drafted or they were undrafted players. And then most of the running backs and the wide receivers, the Lockets, as well as the Golden Tates and the DK Metcalfs, you know, all those guys were found through the draft. So that's the model to follow, which is what we've been talking about with the Giants. Multiple draft classes need to continue to grow and contribute so that you have that foundation. And then if you want to go out and you want to spend a little money, there's nothing wrong with that. Every team needs to do that. But the basis of your team cannot be built through constantly going out every single year and getting a premier pass rusher and a premier wide receiver and a premier linebacker. Financially, you can't survive that Look, way. Lance, in short, last offseason was the offseason where the L.A. Rams looked at themselves and said, you know what, we're really close our window is probably starting to close. We better do something dramatic. And what did they do? They went out and they got Miller. They went out and they got OBJ. They went out and they made the huge trade for Stafford. And everybody knew that with the money they spent and with the draft picks that they gave up in those deals, everybody said it. Last year, the Rams had to win. They had to because they had basically mortgaged everything to make that run because their window was already starting to close. The Giants are not there. That's the back end of the process. The Giants are in the front end, right? Well, and that's why I was talking about when Seattle started to build up its franchise. It's very similar. You find that young quarterback. You build pieces around him through the draft. And the Rams also, some of the trades they made, they also brought in guys where not only did you give up assets through the draft, you then had to give those guys new contracts. For yeah. example, Jalen Ramsey is sure. an example. Sure. So, you know, that's the other thing. Now you're eating up even more cap space to retain those players. That's more of a reason why the Rams, they're not a good example. And I'm not saying you were bringing them up to say everybody should follow. But they were in a position which was much different, to your point, than the Giants. But also, they understand there's going to be consequences and repercussions now down the road as they now have to retool that roster. And some of these guys get banged up and they inch closer to retirement. So, you know, they're going to go through a bit of a transitional phase. Let's head back to the phone lines. John is in Cape Cod. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, John? Hey, Paulie D. Lance, always a pleasure. Hi. Your grasp, your grasp of these games is terrific. I, I can't get enough of it. Well, thank <laughs> you, Tony. I appreciate that. Pod, I should have my own podcast because you raise so many issues. Uh, I need more time. Listen, one thing, if you guys have any information that's not on the net, uh, about Bellinger, and I'm talking about from a personal standpoint. He's a great kid, and we don't have much information on how serious his eye operation was. Um, well, that's medical privileged information that's okay. not really allowed to be disseminated in public. So the only thing that I the only thing that I will say is that I'm aware he was scheduled to have his procedure. I know right. that the Giants were very hopeful that everything would go well. And to this point, the team has not released any statements, and I really can't go any further than that. Yeah, the only thing that we go by, John, is when Brian Dable spoke to the media on Monday, he was asked about the chances of Bellinger getting back on the field this season. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, he said, hopeful, but way too early to tell. So even knowing that he was going to undergo a procedure, Brian Dable wasn't going to commit to anything about perhaps maybe getting him back on the field. And I think right now, given the seriousness nature of that injury, the bottom line is let's hope that Bellinger recovers, gets back to where he was previously before the injury, before we even start talking about X's and O's and him putting on the pads and starting to take some hits. Thank you. Even hearing that that wording from Dable is a positive. Listen, uh, about the t- about the Tony trade, 
Um, I, I agree with Lance, especially, uh, you know, Bill, Bill Belichick and, and Parcells used to say a good player is only a good player if you can keep him on the field. And I haven't seen anything to suggest that they can keep him on the field. Well, 12 out of 24 games, I think, sums it up. I've said it. Paul and I, I believe, had some conversations in previous shows where people were talking about the future of Tony. And I said, I would have preached patience when I was talking a few weeks ago because I would have liked to have seen him get on the field after the bye and see what he could do within the structure of this new offense. But, you know, the waiting game, I'm sure from the Giants' perspective, it gets to the point where you say, if we could get something in return for this player that could help us in the long run, we have to weigh that against the intrigue and the patience of maybe getting something out of him after the buy. And I'm sure those were some of the conversations that they had. But there's no doubt about it. Tony has talent. It's the old story. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you can't stay on the field, then it eats into the upside of the talent. And I think that's what clearly happened in his case. You know what happens so many times with players who have great potential? They call them coach killers. Because you want so badly for the guy to be on the field and you keep itching for him and itching for him and you believe that if we get him out there, he's going to do so many great things for you. And what happens is you just keep pinning your hopes on him and it becomes detrimental at some point because he just doesn't fulfill the expectations that you put on him. I'm not, I'm not saying that Tony's a coach killer. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is there is a tremendous amount of stress relief when you at least put an end to the narrative that, oh, we, we can't wait to get this guy back, and he still doesn't show up. Great great point, Paulie. And, you know, he's electric when he was on the field. But sure the only was. Guy seen, the only guy I've seen where everybody's willing to take a chance on a guy that misses a lot of games is Beckham. And there might be some others out there because he's he's so special. Uh, the well, and he's point, also a good fit for the Chiefs if that could come to fruition because Kansas City leans on guys like um, Kadarius yep. Tony, and they've also taken second chances on a lot of players. So I understand why Kansas City made this trade. It seems as if they have the track record. It's just once again, can Tony stay on the field now that he's on a new team? Yeah, it's just one more piece. To, to replace Tyreek Hill with multiple players. Sure. Uh, the other thing, the other thing is, I, I I I think it was a great deal by the Giants and a smart deal. Um, and I agree, if they could get a receiver this year at four, uh, based on I know I know Tony was a rookie, but he was a number one rookie, so there must have been a decent salary there. It looks like. It looks like the Carolina Panthers are having a fire sale. And well, I don't know about that, John. Team. I mean, they, they just got rid of McCaffrey. Brian Burns, it looks like they're going to hold on to him, and there's some speculation about D.J. Moore. I, I think that's a bit overkill that the Carolina Panthers okay. are having a fire sale when they've only parted ways with one guy. Oh, well, I know, but look at the guy. <laughs> you know, Sure, yeah, but they haven't practice. won. How many games have they won, John, with Christian McCaffrey? No disrespect to McCaffrey. How many games have they won? John, I'm going to I'm going to cut right to the chase here. Forget about all this other stuff. If you're suggesting that DJ Moore is the guy you'd like to get your hands on, I sincerely doubt they're going to take a fourth rounder for DJ Moore. No, He's no, I, I haven't. No, I haven't even analyzed their roster. Okay. I just based it on based it on the importance. You know, moving moving forward to the to the Seattle game. My son, one of my sons, is in Washington. Watches all the Seahawks. Uh, I tell you, uh, losing Metcalf is huge. If you've watched this guy play, and I watched him play a lot. And the other thing is, Penny, you know, with his injuries, yes, when he was not injured, he was another beast. So not having the one-two punch, I think, allows the Giants to maybe load the box, especially with no Metcalf and dedicate themselves to stopping the run. You know, Pete, Pete Carroll's a magician. I think everybody's starting to realize what he's done in what they call the rebuilding phase. I'll, I'll give you a, a potential strategy, and thanks so much for the call. At, at one point last week, after Etienne started running off some pretty good pieces of yardage, 
the Giants wound up actually spying him with Landon Collins. And that's a very interesting strategy because you don't usually see a spy on a running back. You usually see a spy on a quarterback. Now, if the Giants view Walker's speed and his big hit ability to such a degree that they think he might be in some ways as dangerous as Etienne, they might just employ that spy tactic that Collins was using last week, this week. Collins is already acclimating himself now more and more to the system. Just talked to the coaches today. They're all gung-ho about him. They're looking to get him even more involved than he was last week, which I think was about 30 plays, Lance. Is that right? I think, yeah, in that ballpark. Mm -hmm. So, So don't be shocked now if Collins becomes an important part of the Giants' improving rushing defense because he will fill gaps better than Tay Crowder will. And you probably will see him in addition to Smith and Crowder on the field all at the same time because technically, again, Collins kind of becomes that hybrid. Uh, But he's another gap filler like Jalen Smith is. So I expect the Giants' rush defense to be improving as Collins gets weaved more and more into the the scheme. And that's why there's going to be another great test for the Giants' defense to see whether or not they've made strides in that department because Seattle's more than comfortable utilizing their workhorse running back and having him set the tone. So if they could put, once again, Geno Smith into uncomfortable third downs, I think that plays right into the Giants' hands. But we just we haven't seen them consistently shut down the run. And this is the ideal game because if there's any game that you truly want to take away yep. the rushing attack from a quarterback, it's the Seattle Seahawks. Because Geno hasn't really had a game where he's had to operate where it's been a one-dimensional contest. And actually, I wanted to get to this earlier, and that was a good way to transition back into it. If you look at the passing attempts, Paul, for Geno Smith over the course of this season, most of them have been modest numbers, really 30 or less, which I'm sure Seattle wants to operate with. The Atlanta game was as high. 44 pass attempts. No surprise. They lost that game. It was a close right. game, but they lost 27 to 23. Every other game, there was one game he went to 31. That was against Arizona two weeks ago. Everything else was 30 or less. So the Seattle Seahawks, they want to keep Geno Smith in the 25 to 31 department pass attempts. And this is a number just to monitor. If you see Geno, by the time we get to Sunday's game, third, fourth quarter, and he's tinkering with 35, 36 pass attempts, that probably is going to be good news for the Giants because it probably means that the Giants have at least contained. I don't want to say shut down. Shut down is too strong of a word for any team, but have contained Kenneth Walker that Geno has to make more plays with his arm and maybe thinking I've got to go for the home run or I need to play a little bit of hero ball. He hasn't been put in that type of position. So the Giants do that. You know, that maybe puts Seattle in uncharted territory. If Kenneth Walker can maintain positive yardage and it becomes more of a balanced tack, you know, then it's one of those all bets are off, nail biter, down to the wire games, which nobody should be surprised if this gets decided by one score, considering every single other game has been decided by one score for the Giants. If Seattle has an easier time containing Saquon Barkley than the Giants do Kenneth Walker, then the Giants deserve to lose the game. Okay? Let's just make it that simple for you. It's really, let's just make it that simple. The Giants should have a much easier time dealing with Walker than the Seahawks do with Barkley. That that should be a given. Well, also because I think the individual skill set of those running backs, you know, Barkley's a shiftier guy than Walker. Walker's more power. So with Walker, the tackling has to be on point. You have to make sure that you have 11 guys, as Wink likes to say, all converge on the ball. With Barkley, he'll have a corner where all of a sudden he's got two or three guys in his vicinity, and he'll make all three of them miss. And then if the rest of the defenders are out of whack or out of position, good night. He'll take it to the house. Yep. So it's a little bit different. I think in terms of what both of these defenses are up against, but I would agree with you. I don't think the Giants are going to have nightmares in comparison to what ETN brings to the table, right? He's more of a shiftier guy in comparison to Kenneth Walker. And that's the beauty and frustration of the NFL, Paul. Every week, the goal is to still stop the run, but the problem is every week you go up against a different style running back. So the way you bring down one guy is very different than your approach for the following guy in the next contest. 
and why I have so much faith in Wink Martindale and his kaleidoscope defense because I do believe, despite their troubles with their run fits, I believe that Wink will always be able to outmatch the other coordinator in terms of his scheme and his personnel. I, I just I, I believe that strongly in Wink Martindale. This guy has blown me away in terms of being impressive. So the Giants and the Seahawks in the Emerald City, 425 p.m. Eastern kickoff on Sunday. Our pregame show starts at 210. You can listen to that on WFAN as well as Giants.com and Sirius XM Channel 823. We'll also have full postgame coverage following the contest as well. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest as today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants platform. Giants platforms everywhere, as well as Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the game, and we will speak to you on Monday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.